Nicole called me uh, at five o'clock in the morning and woke me up, which is, you know, how these calls always seem to go. And she began to describe what was on the clip. The first question was, are we going to put video on the air of someone being killed? That's obviously a very bright line editorial decision that you don't make every day. And, and normally we wouldn't. But to understand the sequence of events and what happened, you needed to see all of it. That was KSTP News Director Kirk Varner describing the moment he learned that there was video evidence of George Floyd's murder. The station's nuanced reporting on Floyd's death, as well as their coverage of the protests that shook Minneapolis, won a 2021 DuPont Columbia Award. Hello and welcome to another episode of On Assignment. I'm Abby Wright. I run the prizes department at Columbia Journalism School, and I am joined today, as always, by my friend and colleague, Lisa R. Cohen. She runs the DuPont Awards. And Lisa, I understand we have some DuPont-related news for everybody. Yes, indeed. And I'd like a drum roll, please, because as of May 1st, the 2022 DuPont Awards are officially open for submissions. You can go to our brand new and improved website, dupont.org, for more information and to submit. That is exciting. It's always so gratifying to see the wide variety of stories on different platforms that we get submitted. Remind the good people, Lisa, out there, what kind of work we're looking for for DuPont. Well, you'll hear a little bit about this in the episode, but the DuPonts honor the best audio and video reporting wherever it appears. And the focus there is really on that last word, reporting. Absolutely. Deeply reported stories with impact. That work can take different forms, feature-length documentaries, nightly news segments, podcasts, but it always comes back to the reporting. And the stories can be international, national, or like the subject of today's podcast, local. And the DuPonts have always had a strong commitment to local journalism. And KSTP's coverage of Minneapolis, when it became the center of a national and even international reckoning on race, really stood out. And it raised so many issues. We'll hear about this in detail from Kirk in today's episode. But part of what was so impressive about their coverage was how they kept a local commitment, even as the story expanded literally around the globe. Right. And they were doing all of it in the midst of a global pandemic. That's right. You'll also hear uh, about the personal challenges that reporters faced, including tear gas and pepper spray, but also burnout and more. Well, let's get right to it. This is an edited conversation with you, Lisa, and KSTP News Director Kirk Varner. Can you say anything about what winning a DuPont means to a local television station? I I know the reference has been made to, you know, is this electronic journalism's Pulitzer? I I don't know that I'm the person qualified to make that assessment, but I can tell you it matters just as much as that prestigious award does to us and and that we're very honored to be in the company of the amazing folks who have won this award this year and in years past. That's great. Congratulations. This is a work that the DuPont jury obviously felt was important enough to merit a DuPont award. Why is this story so important? I think the story is so important because 
it has so many layers and those layers unfolded in real time as the story happened and the backdrop of this is more than just an arrest. This is more than just the questions of black suspect, white officers. This is going to be something that we're going to be talking about, at least locally, for some time to come. But also, as the story continued to evolve and grow, the national and international implications. And I know it may sound a little odd to say that, but it really was recognized early on in the process that history was being made here, that the things that happened here had never happened here before, and the reaction to it, and the outrage, and the protest, and the things that were exposed in that brief video clip to this day live on, but the, the story in its first week was so intense and so, at times, truly overwhelming that the coverage of it and the journalism of it required an extra gear out of people, an extra way of approaching it that I don't think they would have known they had in them before all of this happened. And one of what turned into one of the biggest stories of the year. Which all begins with a phone call at about uh, 5 a.m. on the Tuesday morning from our morning executive producer who said, uh, we've been in contact on social media uh, most of the evening with a young woman who has shot cell phone video of a police arrest of a man who uh, was, uh, uh, basically the call out was for uh, the passing of a counterfeit bill. Uh, when it began, uh, we didn't know the name George Floyd. We didn't know anything that had happened in real time other than the fact that there was this eight plus minute clip of what appeared to be a police officer with his knee on the neck of a suspect. The people who were standing by watching the situation take place were very agitated, upset, continuing to talk to the officers and yelling at them uh, to do something for this man on the ground who was in distress, in their opinion, uh, which also, as it turned out, included an off-duty Minneapolis firefighter, uh, a paramedic trained, who kept saying, you have to check his pulse because he had, at one point during the proceedings, passed out and was unresponsive. How did you come to learn about this footage? You know, it, we do, as a normal course of business, monitor social media. So we had been looking at social media, and uh, in the words of one of the producers here, it had just blown up uh, with this incident that was being passed around, sent on all platforms. This young woman had shot this footage, and how did you arrange to use it? Whose footage is it? It's hers, and, and she shot it, and we began a back-and-forth dialogue uh, over Facebook, and, you know, we're trying to vet her and her authenticity, and at the same time ask her to be interviewed, which she was very reluctant to do. Uh, she was scared. And so a, a lot of, you know, correspondence back and forth got her to at least trust us in the idea that we would air the footage 
and tell what happened. She was very concerned that the truth would get out and that it wouldn't be covered over or edited in some way that would distort what she had seen. Who was the first uh, TV station to run this footage? There are two of us who put it on at about the same time. Uh, we and the Fox owned and operated station here. Uh, both were in our morning shows and both made the decisions, I think, completely independently that the material, though shocking, was really of public interest and because the initial words on uh, what happened from the police were that the suspect, who we now know was George Floyd, had actually died later at the hospital. So that story began to be questioned and was changing as the morning progressed. But it was a very um, interesting and difficult conversation because we had no way to verify the sequence of events as it took place. How did you, did you end up verifying or did you end up going? We ended up got... talking back and forth with a couple of the eyewitnesses there and all of their stories were consistent in that standpoint. And then as the morning progressed, the official report of what happened began to change to match up what we had reported. And this is like a, you know, one of those big thing questions, but is, is Darnella Frazier a journalist? I don't know that she would call herself that. She certainly, as I think anybody with a smartphone is now, potentially a citizen journalist. And it was clear that she in the moment recognized what was happening needed to be documented. And it's to the best of our ability, and we've watched the video over and over again, you don't hear her speak very often in the video. There are a lot of voices, a couple who are very strong and predominant, but, but her voice is really more about documenting in the moment what's happening. And there are times when you see her reposition herself or move um, as anybody with a camera would to make sure what she was seeing was the actual sequence of events and what happened was what her phone captured. It's just such an interesting question, and I'm sure you say that you listen to your keeping track of social media all night to find out what's happening. This world has changed as far as what is news gathering and how you do it. It's one of the biggest challenges these days, I think, is, is trying to continue uh, to be professional journalists and do what we know to do and what we've been trained to do, but understand that there are cameras everywhere now. And it's trying to ascertain the first question is, what is it we're seeing? Is it authentic? Did it happen the way we think it did? But also remembering, you know, as we all try to do, that idea that the camera only sees this much and what happened on either side. And it wasn't until later on that day that we got the first clip of a, a citizen with a phone on the opposite side of what happened, looking backwards, that reverse angle. And it's fascinating because you end up looking not so much at what happened between George Floyd and the officer, but the people who were around it, who you only hear in the original clip, but that you actually see in context of what they were doing and how close they were and their continued insistence that something had to be done for this man who was on the ground. It wasn't a question of, is he a criminal? Is he a suspect? It's he's someone who's struggling at the moment 
and no one is acknowledging that, at least no one in a uniform to their minds was. Yeah, and, and it had the attention of the whole world on it, you know, in a way that is not typical of the stories that local reporters are reporting. That question of remembering that our job was not to try to outdo national or international media, it was to be the local voice of this, the local perspective on this on all sides and trying to capture all sides of that, even though there were times that any one of those sides wouldn't necessarily trust us, wouldn't necessarily think that we were representing the truth, that the question, I think, for every journalist in 2020 is fighting that initial perception from so many people that we come with an agenda, that we have some inherent bias, that there's something that affects our coverage. And I would tell you the only thing that I really believe affected our coverage over this entire period is human nature, is the fact that journalists work very hard to process a story without their own emotions or feelings attached to it. And it was at times impossible not to. And so that required yet again a different way of looking at this story as it evolved and unfolded that I think made everybody along the way stop and pause and go, okay, I have to do this. This is important and it's work that matters, which I think we all believe it always is, but there are times you know it's, it's more. What were those emotions? I think everything. I, I think the emotions mostly were concentrated in the how can this be happening? How is it this moment has happened? Is it indicative, as so many thought at the time, of things that we, we, we suspect happened, but we didn't know because there wasn't footage, there wasn't video, that this was a narrative that had the evidence instantly in front of us. That evidence led to the lightning fast action by the mayor of Minneapolis and, and the police chief to fire these officers. They weren't put on administrative leave. They weren't handled in the normal fashion. This, this was very much a story in which things that normally would take time and process to happen happened in an instant. And that feeling that above all, we had to chronicle things in a way that let people know what was going on, but not yield to the immediate pandering or fear that would be easy to have because this was a story that touched folks because they live here and that they had all of this happen literally in their home. And so that required yet another level of making sure that when things happened like a journalist was hit by a rubber bullet or our people were pepper sprayed, even though they clearly identified themselves. Those were all things that the moment of covering the story was one set of emotions. And then when they came back to the newsroom, put their story on the air and had a moment to think about it, had to process that in a very different fashion than they might normally have with a normal news uh, day that would turn into night and the next day before you even knew it. 
Right, because the story is continuing and continuing. So getting back to that, can you talk a little bit about like what, what was the conversation like about whether or not to put this on the air and, and in what form? You know, the conversation, uh, the, the first conversation was between myself and our morning executive producer, Nicole Roddy. And Nicole called me uh, at 5 o'clock in the morning and woke me up, which is, you know, how these calls always seem to go. And... She began to describe what we had and and what was on uh, the clip. And the first thing I remember asking her was, is he dead? Meaning the man who was on the ground. And she said, that's confused. We think he is. But the question is, did that happen in front of us? Because the first question was, are we going to put video on the air of someone being killed? That's obviously a very bright line editorial decision that you don't make every day. And and normally we wouldn't. But the reality was to understand the sequence of events and what happened, you needed to see all of it. In fact, one of our longest conversations I can remember was a discussion about deciding the following evening to air the entire clip all eight and a half minutes of it with appropriate pauses to explain what was happening. But it was the first time that we had said, we're going to air the entire thing with a clock in the corner so you understand the sequence of events because oftentimes in the editing process, you show a small portion of what happened, but not the reality as it unfolded in front of these people who witnessed it. And you did that? We did. Uh, we aired that um, the, the next evening um, after a lot of conversations about um, why we hadn't to that point. We had shown pieces of it put together in a way that you got, in essence, a time-lapse version of the events. But the idea of actual second-by-second second watch of that brings it into a very different focus. And were there people at the station who were saying, we can't put this on the air? You know, oddly enough, it wasn't we can't put this on the air. It's what will happen when we put it on the air. What does this mean? And why are we doing this when we normally wouldn't? What makes this situation different? Now, by the following day, it was clear this was a very different story and had a lot of things that were part of it that had not been on our normal process of a, of a daily reporting of a crime or an arrest or anything like that. So that really mutated, I guess would be the right word, into a different level conversation about not whether we were going to air it, but how do we air it and put context to it. That's really interesting. I didn't think of it that way, that you're, you have to think to yourself, if we put this on the air, what are we in some way partly responsible for what will ensue? Right. And, and at that point, we, there was enough of a drumbeat of the reaction to this that we, we had to make the decisions about this as a part of our coverage, but frankly, all of our coverage. Are we helping or are we inciting? You know, are we part of truly informing everyone of what's going on? Or can what we are doing be seen as creating more of a problem. And that was something we, we had to really fold into 
every decision we made, including where we sent people, when they were allowed to be identified as any member of the press, when they uh, would necessarily turn a light on a camera on. Normally you think about that and it's not anything, but uh, as soon as a light went on near a demonstration, it attracted a swarm of people who would then perform in front of the camera. So embedding our people into these situations in a way that they were observers and not necessarily participants or creating artificial uh, things happening was really important. And these are always considerations, but I imagine in a situation this volatile. You're absolutely right. They're, they're always considerations, but not so much in real time. This was literally communicating to folks in the field, you can't be where you are, move. And, you know, in some cases not reaching folks in the field because cell phones or radios weren't always working the way you'd want them to. And there were moments that as the person responsible for the newsroom, I was genuinely afraid for my people, that I genuinely was worried about, okay, these folks need to know what they don't know is that there's a much larger crowd a block away from them that's coming towards them and that they have to be able to react to that. How, how dangerous was it and what were those dangers? I think the danger was in not understanding that the way this ebbed and flowed happened so very quickly and that both sides at times were not fans of journalists being where they were. Uh, the police didn't necessarily want us sometimes where we were or documenting what we were doing. Um, the protesters eventually didn't want us sometimes where we were because they saw us as extensions of a system that they genuinely felt was broken and had been broken for a long time. And so that idea of navigating uh, safety is something that it took on a new level of importance for us. Conversations about nobody goes out by themselves, that a minimum group of people should be three in the field, one to photograph or video what's going on, another to report on it, and a third just to watch their backs and to watch what was happening around them and not be focused on the live reporting that often took place there. That's a different thing than most local TV newsrooms deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. How bad did it get? What were some of the worst things that happened? The, I think the worst night was late on the Saturday of the weekend. Um, it, it was a late evening and the police were trying to be more aggressive in terms of securing areas. Um, the precinct had burned, so there were other threats on other precinct buildings and facilities. And so the police presence had beefed up a bit by then. The National Guard was involved. There were a lot more riot gear equipped officers on the streets. And so there were a, a couple of occasions where our folks were just in the wrong place at the wrong moment and there was no way out. They, they just got trapped and uh, one hit by a rubber bullet, uh, a couple were pepper sprayed and, and I mean at point blank range. And that was a physical reality that again, none of the folks who'd encountered it uh, that night had ever seen before. And no amount of saying we're the press 
were not the protesters made any difference in that moment. That was another moment where we ran the unedited footage on the air. We just said, people need to see what our folks experienced. It was a moment where we realized that we couldn't take anything for granted. We couldn't take our own safety for granted. We couldn't take the telling of the story for granted. And we hadn't. I don't mean to suggest that we had been callous about it up until that point, but there's a reality and a moment that happens where everything changes, and that was that moment for us. And so it sounds like you're saying that the biggest dangers, the the moments that caused the most danger were the moments when you were in confrontation with the police as opposed to the protesters. Exactly. And I think there's that moment where you are no longer covering the story, you've become part of the story. And we work really hard to not do that, obviously, is a regular course of action for us. But that moment where you recognize this is no longer a story where we're reporting about other people. These are our people, these are our colleagues, and they're in the middle of this. Did you prepare your reporters to cover these protests once it became clear that police were using aggressive tactics against the, the protesters? Like, did, did you have to discuss how to cover that any differently? We did. We had conversations about things like when you're not actually covering the story, when you're setting up or when you're reviewing footage, you know, how that scene and understanding that, again, safety is a big deal, but also that your process is being scrutinized in real time, that there are people who are going to walk by you or stop and ask you what you're doing, and that you're going to have to be a different level of involved and engaged at that moment, that you can't just you know, ignore that or say, wait a minute, because those people aren't going to wait. So tell me about the resources for all of this. How, how are you doing this? How are you getting everywhere, everywhere everybody everywhere they needed to be? Is it, did you spend your entire budget in like a week? What, how did this all work? Because we are uh, a locally owned and operated television station that the Hubbard family who runs this company Uh, lives on this campus, basically is two floors above me where I'm sitting right now. And their uh, directive was very simple and plain early on, do what you need to do to cover this story, but be sure you cover all of it. Be sure that you not only hear from the protesters, but you hear from the person whose business was burned down. That we don't do a drive-by of this story, that we make sure we tell it all, uh, the good, the bad, the ugly, and, and parts of it were all three, and that they were never asking, what are you doing here? It was, what aren't you doing here? And I think the two keys to the coverage for us were really um, the fact that everybody wanted to work, and, and, and we had to you know, do the hard job of separating people and scheduling them in overlapping shifts so nobody burned out. And all of this is happening with the pandemic going on. You mentioned the pandemic, yes. It was uh, interesting because we had been a couple of months into understanding the virus and what we were dealing with. So it, it was already a busy news time in 2020. You mentioned burnout. Did you have burnout? How did you handle it? 
We, we made it a point to when we saw people struggling or got the sense that they had been on too long, we sent them home and said, you're off for the next day, you know, go home, uh, shower, take a long hot one, uh, get some sleep. We will try very hard not to call you unless we really need you, but uh, we had to force some folks to, to step back a little bit and just get rest and perspective. What does that look like? How do you know? Like, what are the signs? I think the, the, the few that jump to mind are a little bit more edginess and tone of voice. My mother would probably call it snippiness, but also I think we just did it from a standpoint of how many hours has this person been working in a row? How many things have they been exposed to? Um, how much do they need uh, a break from what's happening? Um. Are there a couple of want maybe one or two moments in the coverage of, that you did that really stand out to you as uh, something to talk about here? That sense that this moment will always be one you're going to think differently about comes to my mind in three places. One, as discussed earlier, was when a group of our journalists were in the midst of a situation where they were literally caught between a line of protesters who had lined up facing off against a line of riot gear equipped officers. And the officers were determined to take the block and began marching forward. Our folks are on the side, but they're up against a wall. And as the officers came forward, the officers treated them as a threat because they couldn't move backwards. The wall pinned them in in a cloud of pepper spray and tear gas and trapped in a way that they, they just didn't know what was gonna happen when it happened. And I think that moment, I think another moment, maybe the one that stands out the most to me because I was standing in the control room when it happened was on Sunday night when we'd had a large group of protesters go onto the bridge uh, on I-35 that crosses the river. And we saw in the blink of an eye, the crowd begin to part and this tractor trailer come barreling into them at a high rate of speed. And that moment of, is this when you pull the plug? Is this when you take the camera off the air? Because I was almost certain in that fraction of a second that there were gonna be deaths, that there were gonna be people trapped underneath this truck. By some miracle, there were not. It was that moment where you go, am I doing the right thing? And before you can even answer the question, the event's happening in real time. We didn't know if the driver of the truck was intent on ramming the crowd and, and, and creating death and destruction. No one knew that. Then the next moment, the crowd has, is, the truck has stopped. The crowd has opened the door to the tractor, pulled the driver out, and has him pinned up against the side of the bridge. Wait, let me just stop you. That was happening live on the air? Correct, yes. We were on the air covering the protest, and when it went on the bridge, um, we saw it on a uh, state traffic camera, which we took to show the crowd. In fact, one of our anchors gasped that when they're seeing it in the studio at the, at the time. I didn't realize that. Yeah, that, that happened in real time on our air. Um, I think the other moment that stands out to me is one of the nights after the initial 
48 hours, there was a group of people who had gathered around the spot where George Floyd had died, where ultimately a makeshift memorial had grown. And they were not all of color. They were not one homogenous group that you could label in terms of any socioeconomic factor or anything else that was obvious. It was just a group of people who were holding on to each other and just trying to support each other, trying to be genuine and trying to process their feelings, not just about the death of George Floyd, but what the death of George Floyd signified in their thinking about race and their thinking about privilege and in their thinking about the normalcy of their town. We, we broadcast it without any narration, but that kind of snapshot of, of genuine human feeling that did not seem to be just about the anger or the outrage or the indignance, processing what had happened and what it meant to them and why their lives had changed. That is such a touching scene. And again, it gets to what you said at the beginning of the episode, Lisa, the importance of the local news story. Yeah, even after the death of George Floyd sparked national protests and even got so much international attention, there were still these quiet human moments happening in Minneapolis. And a station like KSTP was there to record them and share with the local community. Well, it's just that kind of commitment and attention that really impressed the DuPont jury last year. I feel like that's my cue to mention again that the 2022 DuPont Awards are now open for submissions. The deadline is July 1, and again, for more information and to submit your good work, head to DuPont.org. This episode of On Assignment was brought to you with the support of the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and Columbia Journalism School, and it was produced by J-School grad Jack Rossiter-Munley. We also had production assistance from our just-departed DuPont fellows, Arcelia Martin and Rose Gilbert. Our music is by Dylan Nowak. Follow us on Twitter at Columbia Journ. Until next time. <laughs>